This is Cardinal Francis George. I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a nonprofit ministry at the forefront of Catholic evangelization, using new media to spread the faith on every continent. Father Barron challenges us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, we've come now to the very end of the liturgical year, to the great feast of Christ the King. You know, it's exceptionally difficult for us, with our deeply democratic sensibilities, to enter sympathetically into this feast, because we don't particularly like kings in our culture. Let's face it, our nation was formed in a great act of rebellion against the tyranny of a king. Our whole system of government evolved in such a way as to hold off any claim to absolute or king-like authority. But I think, friends, we have to get over this reticence. For kingship is a central symbol for the Bible. And one of the primary ways that biblical authors attempted to express the significance of Jesus. So we have to do a little act of cultural uh, transplantation and get back into the time of Jesus. Keep in mind that ancient peoples took kingship for granted. Even the little tribes of the Amorites and the Jebusites and the Amalekites had kings. We think of them today probably as more like uh, street gangs, these little roving bands of warriors, but even they had kings, the Bible says. And of course, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, all had kings. It was just the way things were structured. At a key moment in his history, Israel asked for a king. God warned them against it. Look in 1 Samuel to find the evidence here. But they persisted, and so God gave them Saul, the first king of Israel, who turned out, of course, to be a disaster. But Saul was succeeded by arguably the greatest hero in Israelite history, David the king. David, despite his faults, brought the country together, defeated its enemies, established its capital in Jerusalem, and resolved to build the temple as the place of right praise. This great heroic figure emerges precisely as a king who accomplished these great things. He was the focal point around whom the holy people were gathered. He was their head. He was their leader. Now, keep reading the biblical history. You find out that in the wake of David... The kings of Israel became weak and corrupt, and they allowed the nation to fall into degradation, to be overrun by foreign powers. And so, the people Israel began to dream of a new David, a new king who would do everything David had done, but on an even grander scale. 
They hoped that this new king would unite the nation definitively, cleanse the temple finally, defeat Israel's enemies completely, and then reign over the whole world as all the nations are brought to the worship of the true God. Now, look back in the Old Testament. You'll find over and over again this great messianic hope, a hope for the Mashiach, the anointed one. Keep in mind that David, as a young kid, was anointed by Samuel. He is a Mashiach, an anointed one. The new David, the new king, they hoped, they dreamed, they prayed, would one day arrive. It's only against this very rich and complex background that we can begin to appreciate what Jesus was doing and how he was perceived. The first words out of his mouth and the central theme of his preaching concern the kingdom of God. Right away, we're in Davidic territory here. A kingdom is being announced. A new reign, a new order, centered on himself. Right away, of course, these were perceived quite rightly as fighting words. For if a new kingdom is coming, what? The old kingdoms have to give way. If a new king has arrived, the old kings have to cede. Don't we hear that precisely in the beginning of the Gospels? When even the baby Jesus arrives, Herod and with him all Jerusalem tremble. That's the arrival of the new king, the arrival of a new kingdom. Just as a sidelight, whenever you pray the familiar Lord's Prayer, and you say those words, they probably just pass through your mind. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You see, you're praying that the old kingdoms be supplanted. That's why that prayer is properly revolutionary. Now, what does Jesus do, having announced the kingdom? He endeavored to do exactly what David had done, to unite the nation, to bring the tribes back together. This was the point, as I've been saying now for many months, of his open table fellowship. Jesus still surprising, still shocking outreach to sinners, tax collectors, his inclusion of the sick and the marginalized. That was Jesus now, the new David, gathering in the tribes. Then at the end of his life, he comes into David's city, the city of Jerusalem, and he cleansed the temple. Well, in some ways, exactly what David had done. David establishes the temple as a place of right praise. Jesus cleanses now the corrupt temple and promises that he will establish a new one. I will tear down this place and three days rebuild it. He was referring to the temple of his body. And as we've seen, Throughout his life and ministry, Jesus opposed the old kings. Now, think of David surrounded by the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, all the great enemies of Israel, and David's continually fighting them. 
We see something very similar now in Jesus, though he fights in a very unexpected way. Think of those infancy narratives. Matthew and Luke set them up as a tale of two kings. Jesus is presented as the great alternative to Quirinius and Augustus. Even as he arrives as a baby, he frightens Herod, and by extension, he frightens Quirinius and Augustus. The old order is being set up as a kind of rival to Jesus, and throughout his public ministry, he will confront them. Now, This confrontation between the old and new orders, this confrontation between the old kingdoms of the world and the new kingdom comes to its highest expression as Jesus stands before Pontius Pilatus, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, the local representative of Caesar Augustus. And this is our gospel for today, the Feast of Christ the King. Pilate undoubtedly sure of his power and authority, sizes up the criminal in front of him. Probably with a, oh, smile on his lips, maybe a bit of a sneer, he says, so you're the king of the Jews. Now, Pilate meant this, of course, in a purely political, purely worldly way. So you're the one trying to seize political control of this part of the Roman Empire. Mind you, Pilate knew about such pretenders to power. There were all kinds of revolutionaries, all kinds of of kings proposing themselves. But this scene now is packed with irony, which you often find in John's Gospel. For any Jew would have known the full import of Pilate's question. He was really asking, are you the king of all the world? Because again, the expectation was when the new David came, he would be the king of the Jews and by extension, the king of the world. He would draw all the nations to the praise of the true God. What Pilate's saying, therefore, is, are you the new David, destined to reign over all the nations? We have to attend now very carefully to how Jesus answers him. He tells him straightforwardly enough, My kingdom does not belong to this world. So important, isn't it? The reign that he has been announcing from the beginning, this kingdom of God, is not a new political order based, like all the others, on threats and violence. This is why now he immediately clarifies that his attendants are not fighting to keep him from being handed over. No, no. The reign of God that he announces is a reign of nonviolence and the compassionate ordering of things. Think of his table fellowship. Think of his outreach. Think of his love for the poor. All of that now is the very nature of this new order. Well, Pilate, a purely political player, is unimpressed with all this spiritual talk. What is the truth? He says, when Jesus says, I've come to witness to the truth. And then he coldly condemns Jesus to death. Pilate's playing the typical Roman game. The typical worldly game of power politics. And by all appearances, 
He's one. As ruthless and violent people always seem to win. As he sends Jesus off to be crucified, anybody watching the scene would say, well, there's that poor dreamer, that poor alternate king now being led off to be killed. But then the supreme irony upon which our Christian faith depends, which is the central proclamation of this feast day. Through the cross and resurrection, Jesus, in fact, defeated Pilate. The new king outmaneuvered the violence of sin, swallowing it up in the divine forgiveness. Jesus took on the full weight of the Roman Empire, the full weight of human sin and dysfunction, and swallowed them up in the divine forgiveness. And that's how he defeated the enemies of Israel. That's how he fought as the Davidic warrior. Now look how it comes together. And John is so clear on this. He also, in the same act, established his own body as the new temple. That's why blood and water flowed forth from it. Furthermore, he gathered all people to himself as the Davidic king was expected to. John says, when the Son of Man is raised up, he will draw all people to himself. In other words, we see he is the new king. He is the one to whom final allegiance is due. And this is why, too, in that final irony, it was Pilate himself who announced this kingship as the prophets predicted to all the world, putting on that cross in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He knew who the new king was. We know who the new king is. That's the point of this feast of Christ the King. And God bless you. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love. Father Robert Barron is combating the crisis of faith in our culture. Father Barron's expanded website can deepen your faith, give you new insights into scriptures, and help you become a better Christian. Go to wordonfire.org and tap into Father Barron's compelling videos, sermons, articles, and much more. Wordonfire.org. Connect with one of the Catholic Church's best messengers. Every day, everywhere.